1 through 15. Turn there with me. There's some Bibles on the back table if you need one. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, I think I need to uh, work on my coolness factor. I, uh, you know, normally I come up after Ben or Chris or someone like that and you know, I'm like a breath of fresh air after those guys, right? <laughs> but then Dan comes along, and next week we've got Jacob, and uh, I don't know, going to have to get an accent or something. Or <laughs> Who said amen? Who said amen? <laughs> yeah, I said amen too. Anyway. <laughs> I don't know. These cardigans are getting old. I haven't got much else where to go, so I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, we're looking at today at conversion. Uh, in the 4th century, there was a young man who was in love. He wasn't in love with anyone in particular. He was in love with love. Uh, and he was in love with sex. And one day, he was sitting in a park trying to make sense of his life, and he heard this little girl playing and she was singing these words or kind of chanting these words, take up and read, take up and read. And he's thinking to himself, that's an odd thing to a little girl to be saying. And he thought about it some more and he thought, I, I think I should go home. And he had his, left his Bible at home on the table. He ran home and he opened the New Testament and he read the first thing that his eyes fell upon. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. He didn't need to read any more. He turned to Jesus 
and God overcame his lusts and his sex addiction. That man was Augustine, and he went on to become one of the most famous theologians in the history of the church. In February 1738, John Wesley had an extraordinary experience at Aldersgate Street in London. He was gathered with a group of Christians and he was listening to someone read the preface of Luther's commentary to the Romans, commentary on Romans. And Wesley wrote in his journal about a quarter before nine while he was describing the change about which God works in the heart through faith in Jesus, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. An assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley had been working for the last three years as a missionary in America. And yet... He stood up a few days after that experience and announced that he'd only recently become a Christian. And yet later in life, Wesley would go back to his journal and mark on that same page where he'd written, this is the day that I was converted, he would write in the margin, I'm not so sure actually. I think I might have been a Christian before that. In the summer of 1929, C.S. Lewis got on a bus, an atheist, and got off believing in God. He was not yet a Christian. It took him a couple more years to kind of believe in Christ. But for C.S. Lewis, conversion was largely an intellectual affair. That is, the reasons that he became a Christian were intellectual He describes it in his book, Surprised by Joy, as being like a game of chess where God kind of checkmated him with these arguments. And even more surprising, I think, I just think this is wonderful, his conversion was actually largely a literary affair. I just think that's fantastic. One of the reasons that he became a Christian was because because of the thinness of non-Christian fiction. That is, the world that, non, that, that writers who weren't Christians, the world that they constructed in their novels was so empty. It was, so, it was like a cardboard cutout. And he read these Christian writers like G.K. Chesterton who, who wrote about this world that was thick and meaningful and diverse and represented the world in which Lewis lived. Notice that all three of those conversion stories are wildly different. A guy called Herman Barvink, a theologian, writes of the differences between the conversions of some of the leading lights of the Reformation. He notes, in Luther's life, it consisted in passing from a deep sense of guilt to a joyful sense of God's forgiving grace in Christ. Zwingli experienced conversion especially as a liberation from legalistic bondage to the glorious joy of the children of God. And Calvin experienced conversion, above all, as a deliverance from error to truth and from doubt to certainty. All these 
conversion narratives are so different. So what makes a genuine conversion? Does there have to be a deep sense of guilt followed by a profound sense of peace? That doesn't seem to be there in some of the stories. It doesn't seem to be there in the story of Lewis or even Calvin, perhaps. Does it have to happen in an instant? Lewis seemed to take a couple of years. There was the bus thing, but then he didn't really know Christ until a couple of years later. And what about people who grow up in Christian homes, who have no date that they can give to their conversion? How do they know whether they've been converted? What is genuine conversion? One of the great dangers, I think, in asking that question and in seeking to answer it is is that we make our experience definitive. So the way that we became a Christian becomes the way that everybody else has to become a Christian as well. But that's the road to disaster. What we need to do is to carefully determine what the Bible says about conversion. That's what we want to do this morning. Find out what the Bible says about conversion. Well, conversion, unfortunately, is not really a word that's used in the Bible very much anymore anyway. Uh, It came to be a word used in the Bible in the King James Version. So Acts 3.19, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. If you go to Acts 3.19 now in your Bible, it won't say and be converted. It will use another word. Most modern translations in the place where the word converted was used now use the word turn. And in fact, as you look through the Bible, that language of turning is very, very common. It's one of the big words in the Old Testament that God uses to talk to his people. God continually calls his people to turn to him or to turn away from sin. So listen to these words from Joel chapter 2. Return to me, the same word, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Or these words from Malachi 3. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. See, conversion in the Bible is a turning. It's a turning away from one thing and a turning towards something else. We were facing one one direction. We were facing away from God, towards sin, toward ourselves, toward whatever it is. And people turn, turn the other way to face God, to embrace God, to embrace Jesus Christ. So think of Augustine. He was going one way. And then he started going the other. He was going towards uh, lust and sex and then he started going the other way. Or Lewis, he was an atheist. He was facing away from God and he turned and he became a Christian. The reasons why they turned are different, are vastly different. But both of them turned, you see. That's the main thing. 
They both turn from sin and they turn to God and that is at the heart of what conversion is about. So a more helpful question then than when was I converted, a much more helpful question to ask is which direction am I facing? It's not about the time or the place or the manner, but it's about the direction that we're standing now, toward God or away from God. Conversion is about turning. But it's helpful, I think, to break conversion down even further. And people often break it down into two other words, and those words are repentance and faith. So repentance and conversion or turning appear together in a number of places in the New Testament. So Acts 3.19 says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Or Acts 26, Paul preached that the people should repent and turn to God and they should prove their repentance by their deeds. Uh, And as we've seen, Jesus uh, begins his ministry, as we read in Mark, he begins his ministry with that word repent. In Matthew chapter 3 as well, uh, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In every case, uh, the idea, uh, the idea of repentance is acknowledging sin as sin and turning away from sin, relinquishing sin and following God's ways. So Acts 22, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord, perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. So so Peter calls on the people to, or the particular person in that case, to repent from a particular thought. There's a sin in his life and he's called to turn aside from it. Or in 2 Corinthians, Paul warns about people who've not repented from impurity or sexual immorality or sensuality. There's a thing, there's a sin that they need to repent from. Now, in the history of the church, one of the mistakes that people made was to understand repentance as penance. So in the old uh, Latin version of the Bible, and it kind of crept into some English translations as well, Uh, they would translate the word penance. And penance is quite a different concept from repentance. Penance is the idea that you have to somehow afflict yourself. You have to do penance. You have to afflict yourself somehow for the sins that you've committed. That idea became formalised in the Catholic Church with the sacrament of penance. And people would go and, uh, I think, still go to the priest and they would confess their sins and then the priest would... Uh, sort of prescribe acts of penance that they would need to do so that they could be forgiven. Uh, So they might have to say the rosary, which is a kind of a prayer, or they might have to do Hail Marys or something like that. Penance, in fact, can be almost anything. But that's not what repentance is about. Repentance is not about punishing yourself in order to feel sorry about sin or punishing yourself in order to kind of make up for sin. The Greek word, which is translated as repentance, really means just something as simple as to change your mind. 
It's changing our mind about something. Sin looked uh, wonderful, it looked enticing. We change our mind, we change our mind to say, no, that's not true. God is, God is lovely, more lovely than sin. God is more wonderful. Even the English word repentance makes it sound like one of the key parts of repentance is sorrow. But sorrow is still not really what it's about. It's about changing our mind. Sorrow's part of it. James says in his epistle, Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's calling them to repentance. But he goes on to say, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Or Joel 2, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Joel's calling the people to humble themselves, to mourn over their sin. So sorrow is part of repentance. But the purpose of sorrow is not to be sorrowful, but so that we change the direction that we're travelling. So that we see sin for the wickedness that it is and embrace God for the glorious God that he is. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, godly sorrow brings repentance. It brings that change of mind that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Isn't that interesting? Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Repentance comes from sorrow and repentance embraces the cross and leaves no regret. So you might say something unkind to someone which you then feel bad about. But if you never apologise to them and if you never ask God to forgive you and if you're just as nasty the next time that you speak to them, then that's worldly sorrow. You felt bad about it but nothing's changed, has it? Because it hasn't led to repentance. Or you might say something unkind to someone and then feel bad about it, and then that leads you to apologise to that person and you ask God for his forgiveness. But if you stay miserable and afflicted, then you probably haven't grasped the fact that sin is paid for on the cross. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. That's the daily repentance of the Christian life. But it's also the repentance which brings the Christian life to be. That is, our Christian life begins when for the first time we recognise our sin and rebellion against God and we turn from it. And we turn to God and we say, God, I'm a, I'm a rebel and I'm a sinner. You need to forgive me through Jesus. Please forgive me through Jesus. That's the way that we begin the Christian life, but that's the way that we live the Christian life as well. 
Every day we change our mind about sin and we turn from sin and we turn to God. There's no such thing as conversion without repentance. There must be some sense of turning away from sin. Conversion is not just warm, fuzzy feelings or walking down the aisle uh, or putting up your hand. It's about turning from sin. And it's about seeking God to rescue you from sin. So conversion uh, is about repentance and repentance is about turning away from sin and turning toward Jesus. But the other side of conversion is faith. Faith and repentance are like two peas in a pod in the New Testament. They occur uh, all the time together. The most compelling maybe is the words that Dan read for us just before at the beginning of Mark's Gospel. Jesus begins his ministry and the two words that he uses to begin his ministry are repent and believe. The time has come. He says in verse 15, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. We turn from sin to God, we repent from sin, and we believe in Jesus. We put our trust in Jesus. It's not enough just to repent, we need also to believe. And it's not enough just to believe in Jesus, we need also to repent. But what does it mean to believe? What are we to believe? What is faith? In the modern world, faith is the word that you use when you stop using your head. So it's often set in opposition to science. Once science stops being useful and you can't prove anything anymore, then you just have to believe it. You have to accept it on faith. That's what faith means to people. Faith means to believe things that are dumb, basically. That's what it means. But that's not what faith is in the Bible. Faith in the Bible is trust. It's taking God at his word. It's believing that what God has promised to do, what God has said he will do, he will do. And it's living on the basis of that belief. So those words from Mark 1.15 again, repent and believe the good news, believe the gospel. We're to turn away from sin, but we are to believe the gospel. The good news, the gospel is what God has done in Jesus. It's the good news that God is putting the world right through Jesus. That in Jesus God has punished sin on the cross. And that in Jesus God has begun humanity 2.0. God promises that if we trust and follow Jesus, then through the Holy Spirit Jesus' death is our death and Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection. In Jesus, we've died to sin and we live to God. In other words, to believe God's good news about Jesus is to trust that God can save you from the tyranny of sin too. Faith is not just an abstract belief that those things are true. Though even Satan believes that, right? Even Satan believes that God saves people through Jesus. That's not what faith is. 
just believing that it's true. Faith is believing that it's true and living on the basis of that belief. Living on the basis of that reality. So one of the classic and I think pretty helpful illustrations of faith is the chair. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the chair illustration. Faith, uh, in order to sit on a chair, you need to have faith. So when I come to a chair, I need to believe that it's going to hold me up. You know, if you come to a chair and there are two legs missing and one of the two that's remaining is kind of off to the side a little bit, uh, you know, and uh, rusted, and you look at the chair and you go, that chair's not going to hold me up. But if you come to a good chair, uh, you know, one of these solid, sturdy grey chairs, uh, you come along to a chair like that, you need to believe that it's going to hold you up before you sit down on it. And yet if I come to a sturdy-looking chair and I look at the chair and I think to myself, yeah, that's a good, that's a good quality chair, that is, and that's a sturdy chair, and if I sat on that chair, it would hold me up. If I thought that but then didn't sit down, well, that's just believing the truth but not actually embracing the truth. Do you see, and that's the difference between just believing that Jesus saves and actually embracing it ourselves. We come to Christ and we sit down, so to speak. It's not the amount of our faith or trust that saves us. What saves us is the object of our faith, that it's a good chair. You don't need a lot of faith, just enough faith to sit down. You might sit in the chair and be a quivering mess. Now, that's not going to make your life very pleasant. But that's not the point. What matters is that you sat down in the right chair and that that chair can hold you up. It's not the amount of our faith which saves us. We just have, enough, just have to have enough faith to embrace Jesus. Or in the language of the Bible, we just have to have enough faith to call on Jesus. Paul says in Romans 10, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And we ask, how much do I need to believe in my heart? How much is enough belief? Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you know what he's saying? Just enough belief, just enough to call out to God. That's how much you need. Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Conversion is about repentance. We turn away from sin. But it's also about faith. 
where we put our trust in Jesus. And it's not just about faith where we make a once-off decision, where we begin the Christian life. Today I'm putting my faith in Jesus. No, it's about faith that undergirds our entire life. I love that beautiful description of faith uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 1, it says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see which I find a baffling verse in some ways, but, but one person puts it like this, and I find it so helpful. He says, faith is living as though the things hoped for are real. That's what it is. Faith is living as though the things hoped for are real. And the writer goes on through the rest of that chapter to, to show how that worked out in the lives of Old Testament believers. Noah lived as though the things hoped for, for were real, didn't he? He lived as though they were real because he built an ark. When God said, there's going to be a flood, he believed it and he built an ark. Abraham lived as though the promises hoped for were real. When God said, I'm going to give you this land, Abraham went, didn't he? When he said, I'm going to give you a seed, a son, descendants as numerous as the sand, even though he didn't have a son, or a daughter, anyone at that time, and even though he was 100 years old, he believed God. Moses lived as though the things hoped for were real. He was a prince in Egypt. And God said, I'm sending you out into the wilderness to give you the promised land. And he left, believing that the promises of God were better than the reproaches of Egypt and better than the pleasures of sin. What does it mean to believe the good news about Jesus? It means to live knowing that it's true. To live believing that Jesus rescues you from sin. To live believing that sin is evil. To live believing that in prayer we gain access to God. To live believing that we have a promised inheritance stored up for us in heaven in Jesus Christ. Every time you forego something now in hope of the treasure to come, that's living the life of faith, isn't it? It's living knowing that we've been crucified with Christ and that we've been raised with him. Every time you live believing that your life is worth nothing to you except that you gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of your own, the righteousness which is through faith in Jesus Christ. Every time you live like that, my life matters nothing except that I might gain Christ. Every time you live like that, you live the life of faith. To believe the gospel means living, knowing that the gospel is true. It means having a life shaped by the gospel, not just 30 years ago, but a life shaped by the gospel every day. Was your conversion experience genuine? You may not have even had a conversion experience, I don't know. 
You might have grown up in a Christian home and you might not remember having come to faith. You might have had a profound conversion experience and you're quite troubled and you wonder whether it was really real or not, whether it went far enough or not, or whether it was significant enough or emotional enough or not, or whether you turned away from sin enough or not. But those questions are actually almost completely irrelevant. The important question is, is your life today a life of repentance and faith? And if it is, then you're a converted person. The Puritans used to talk about a life of daily conversions, a life of every day turning from sin and believing the gospel. Are you turning from sin and calling on Jesus every day? If you are, then that's a converted life. Maybe your life isn't a life of of repentance and faith, though. Maybe you don't see that. Well, let today be the first day of repentance and faith, where you say to God, God, I'm turning away from sin. And I'm believing Jesus. Listen to Jesus' command to each of us. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Each one of us are sinful people, born sinful, born dead, born estranged from you, born captivated by sin, born slaves to Satan and to evil. Lord, help each one of us, if we have not already, to turn away from sin and to believe the gospel. And for those of us who have turned away from sin and believe the gospel, help us to keep turning away from sin every day and to keep believing that what you have promised in Jesus Christ is the truth about reality. Lord, help us to live today in the light of everything that you've promised. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.